The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Calibrating Care Across the Hepatocellular Carcinoma Continuum, Guidance on Delivering Effective Care with Modern Immunotherapy and Targeted Approaches. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash AAU860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. My name is Gasala Balfour. So anyway, please, we're going to run a nice video. Uh, please uh, pay attention. These are very valuable information for all of us as uh, healthcare workers as well for our patients. So please enjoy the video. I will be with you in a second. Thank you. Hello. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods. I am president and founder of Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. And we are delighted to work with Peerview on this CME program titled Calibrating Care Across the HCC Continuum, Guidance on Delivering Effective Care with Modern Immunotherapy and Targeted Approaches. Blue Fairy's vision is that we have to fight liver cancer together. Our work improves the quality of life for HCC patients, we support their caregivers, and we give them hope, information, and a voice. Blue Fairy's mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma, through research, education, and advocacy. Now, most people want to know, why Blue Fairy? Well, I founded Blue Fairy in memory of my sister, Adrienne Wilson. I raised Adrienne from the age of eight until she died from metastatic HCC at age 15. Adrian was only sick for 147 days. That diagnosis, her death, it absolutely changed the course of my life. We call ourselves Blue Fairy because Adrian loved fairies. Here she is going to medieval times wearing blue butterfly wings. And after her natural blue hair began to fall out, she got a blue wig to maintain her look. Blue was her favorite color. And so she is our Blue Fairy. One of the things we focused on at the very beginning was patient education. Our patient resource guides for liver cancer are completely free. They are available in English, Spanish, and Chinese. We ship worldwide for free. Over 75,000 guides have been distributed to more than 700 treatment centers across all 50 states. And that is only the first and second edition of our guides. The third edition is in distribution right now. So if you need guides for your center, please order them today. We provide patient support through our liver cancer community. It's a free, private, HIPAA-compliant forum for HCC patients and families. The forum is moderated by our community ambassadors, who are caregivers for their loved ones who usually end up dying from HCC. Here's a recent post from one of our members. Now, when it comes to immunotherapy, I believe in going to the source. So let's hear directly from our community about immunotherapy. These are some of the things they said. My husband was on an immunotherapy combo for nine months with no specific side effects. My father received one course of immunotherapy and experienced oral thrush, fatigue, and weakness. 
My husband wasn't eligible for immunotherapy because he had a bone marrow transplant in the 90s when he had leukemia. So it's really important to get a full medical history to ensure that your patient is even eligible for immunotherapy. And then this patient is currently receiving immunotherapy since February of 2023. He's only missed one treatment due to oral thrush. He's tired but feeling relatively well. We have several programs. Our Adrian Wilson Spirit Award, our individual grants that we give to HCC patients who are advocates for themselves and others during their cancer journey. Our Love Your Liver program, which is going into its fourth year, is our liver disease and cancer public awareness program for those at the highest risk for liver disease and cancer. We want to get to those people before they develop HCC. We have three campaigns throughout the year focused on Blacks and African Americans, Asian Americans, and Hispanic Americans. The Truth About Liver Cancer is a new program that debuted this year. We have bi-monthly live 90-minute workshops to educate the public about liver cancer. The topics vary, and we encourage you to sign up to become a panelist in one of our workshops. Now, I'm very excited to tell you about the Blue Fairy Award for Excellence in Liver Cancer Research. Since 2009, Blue Fairy has been recognizing the leaders in HCC research, including scientists, oncologists, hepatologists, gastroenterologists, interventional radiologists, and so much more. There have been 14 winners, two international recipients, and one two-time winner. And this is the only slide with a very special QR code that you can scan right now with your phone so you can apply for the Blue Fairy Award. To get in contact with Blue Fairy, you can call 818-636-5624, reach out via email, info at bluefairy.org. Remember that is fairy with an E, not an I. Our website is bluefairy.org, B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y. And we are Blue Fairy Liver on most social media channels. You'll be able to find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. I want to thank PeerView for this amazing opportunity and all of you today. I'm so excited to be here. And again, you can reach out to us at bluefairy.org. That's B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y dot org. Thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy your event. So anyway, good evening, everybody. And thanks again for joining us uh, tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking, as you can see on the screen, for the calibrating care across the HEC continuum. These are very big words that we are proud that we're able to tell them these days about hep cell carcinoma and will help to guide and delivering effective care treatment for modern immunotherapy and targeted approaches as well. So uh, the panelists, uh, I introduce myself, Gassana Wolfa, uh, Dr. Anthony Kouiri, who is next to me, as well as uh, Dr. Stacy Stein and Dr. Ahmed Kassin. Again, one more time for Blue Fairy, uh, big thanks. Uh, this is really very important advocacy for the patients. This is really what we care. And that's what we're doing, all of us in this job, that you all should be proud of what you're doing. And uh, as you can see, the resources are endless. No need to read all of this through. Uh, already, Andrea gave us a great uh, debriefing about really what's so close to our heart, 
and uh, if anything, uh, access to care for research, education, and advocacy. If you'd like to, and you have it on your screen as well, that QR code in the uh, top right corner uh, will give you access to all what you need, uh, which is on this slide, as well as other, uh, 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 other activities and uh, applications that uh, Blue Fairy has. So what we're going to do today, we're going to elevate the understanding of the latest evidence supporting the integration of immunotherapy and targeted platform for the management of hepatitis carcinoma. We'll equip you with the tools to develop personalized treatment regimen for patients with HCC across all stages of the disease. I will prepare you to leverage team-based uh, strategies to manage practical aspects of care when integrating modern therapeutic approaches for HCC. So with this said, uh, we'll start uh, the introduction of the masterclass for the reinforcement of the new evidence in HCC treatment algorithms, and we'll address the healthcare gaps in modern strategies. Uh, again, as I mentioned, uh, greatly honored to be here, really humbled to really join all of my colleagues here. Again, as I said, Gassana Wolfa from Sloan Catering Cancer Center, Cornell, and Trinity College Dublin. So the mortality from HCC is on the rise, as we can see here globally. And uh, at the moment, we are close to about 1 billion people diagnosed with HCC. Uh, it was 900 million back in 2020. Uh, I correct myself, 905,000, like what am I talking about here? And uh, at the same time, unfortunately, pretty much everybody dies from it, 830,000 death uh, in 2020. Uh, it's among the three top causes of uh, liver cancer death in 46 countries. At the same time, the number of people diagnosed with the disease and dying globally is expected or anticipated to increase by 25, by 55% between 2020 and 2040. You can see from the coloring that uh, we are definitely not in any comfort zone over here got to the U.S. The hottest or the increased rate is mainly in Southeast Asia, as well as in Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as in uh, the northeast part of Africa in uh, Egypt. But at the same time, you can see that the orange color in the U.S. does not give us confidence. So definitely it's on the rise. Give credit here for Dr. Kurig from the BCLC program in Barcelona for really remodernize the BCLC staging system, which is more of a manual for your access to the appropriate care for patients with liver cancer. Understandably, at early stage, good liver function, we just take it out. On the other hand, for local advanced local disease, uh, limited disease, but with advanced uh, cirrhosis transplant. Then you can see the categories we're going to talk about quite a bit today, which is the category B, which is the intermediate stage, which is really, as you can see, evolved quite a bit in the old days. And many of you have seen the BCLC previous staging system. It was mainly about some form of embolization, chemobolization, bland embolization. And now we can see we have more forms of embolization like radioembolization as well. But add to this, we can see that we can now look at the disease in different directions based on how much of an extent of disease there is. And we're going to talk quite a bit about that. And of course, we have category C, which is one that as medical oncologists it care, we care most about, which is the advanced stage. And sadly, yes, terminal stage disease where best support of care and comfort care is appropriate. And appropriately and correctly, this is what we should recommend for patients when the liver function is not permitting any further systemic therapy. 
This is the timeline while we're meeting here today. This is incredible work. Thanks to all of you and all of uh, uh, the colleagues all out throughout the world that really have contributed either by leading or by contributing or even accruing patients to the different trials that are written over here. If you remember 2007, we had only sorafenib. Then after that, we had hiatus about 10 years because not that we're not doing anything, but really learning about all the things that evolve afterwards. And you can see that it evolved from another uh, tyrosine candidate with rigorafenib. Then this was the introduction of the checkpoint inhibitors came into play with nivolumab. Then we start kind of like going between the two components of tyrosine candidate inhibitor and checkpoint inhibitors. Levantinib, pembrolizumab, cabozantinib, baramisurumab, atezolizumab, vizumab, nivolumab, ipilumab, and then ultimately in 2022 with the rivolumab, or what's called the stride regimen. We'll be discussing all of those in details as well. So, however, despite all this progress, and we're very proud of the slide that we just showed a second ago, sadly, even after a decade from the SHARP trial, which looked into sorafenib versus placebo, believe it or not, sorafenib still is the most widely used treatment for liver cancer all throughout the world. Not only that, but many patients don't have access to any of those therapies. In addition to that, in the intermediate stage, even despite the access to the local, the local therapy like embolization, still many patients might not have the access needed for that therapy. So this is an important thing to be mindful and thoughtful of is that all those celebrations in regard to therapies are not necessarily yet accessible for all the patients would. So with this said, we'll start with our first uh, mass class form one, essentials on refining advanced ACC care, recommendation for optimizing upfront and sequential treatment options, and with this, I would be greatly honored, delighted to introduce my dear colleague and friend, Dr. Anthony Query, Associate Professor of Medicine, Associate Director of the Clinical Research Phase One Program Director at the University of Southern California, North Comprehensive Cancer Center in Los Angeles, California. Anthony, the floor is yours. Thank you, Gessa. Okay, so to set the stage for discussion, we're going to start with a case. 66-year-old woman with chronic hepatitis B presents with right upper quadrant pain. Ultrasound shows a liver mass, validated on MRI, measuring 7 centimeters, LR5, which is radiology lingo for an imaging that's consistent with the diagnosis of HCC, with two satellite nodules. No vascular invasion, no extrahepatic metastases, CHALP-UA, you see all the lab values there, good performance status. Patient is referred for tastes and in parallel for transplant evaluation. So she undergoes taste therapy. Repeat imaging shows progression with increase in the dominant lesion to 8 centimeters and new lesions. Liver function is still CHALP-UA, but she went from ALBI grade 1 to 2. So within the CHALP-UA, she had some deterioration. ECOG performance status still well preserved. AFP went up a bit. EGD shows large varices. Uh, that, you know, represent some bleeding risk. And just ponder this case. And we're going to now look at the evidence and come back to discuss options. So certainly combination IO therapy is the current standard of care for first-line HCC. And that initial shift in how we manage HCC really started with I Am Brave 150 that showed the superiority of atezolizumab, bevacizumab to sorafenib. So as a quick reminder, this was a study for previously untreated HCC patients uh, who had ECOG 021. All the patients had to have an endoscopy within six months prior to enrollment, 
and treatment of varices as per local standard, adequate organ function, CHALP-UA, and they were randomized to atezobev versus sorafenib. The study had co-primary endpoints of PFS and OS, both of which were positive. So here you see a very nice and sustained separation of the curves for overall survival, with a median OS of 19 months for the combination and 13 months or so for sorafenib. Similarly, there was an improvement in PFS with, with again, strong hazard ratios. In addition, uh, we will see on the next slides the improvement in response rate with 30% objective response rate for the combination versus 11% uh, with sorafenib. So this is looking at the responses in a bit more details. Of note is that there was an 8% complete response rate on the atezobev arm. And the responses were durable, honestly, in both arms. So patients, when they respond, they tend to do well with no matter what therapy we actually give them. When looking at adverse events that occurred in 10% or more of patients and where there was more than 5% difference between arms, we don't see any surprises. Diarrhea, hand-foot-skin reaction, anorexia were more common with sorafenib, hypertension almost equally common with both regimens, um, more abdominal pain with sorafenib, and then you see the expected proteinuria uh, and infusion reactions in the atezobev combination. Uh, as far as grade 3 and 4 bleeding events, an important uh, concern with bevacizumab, this was actually no, not significantly different between the two arms, 6.4% with atezobev, 5.8% with sorafenib. So the EGD screening, I think, paid, paid off in that sense. Of note, it's not mentioned here, the majority of the bleeding events were low-grade and the majority occurred in patients with main portal vein thrombosis who by nature are higher risk for bleeding. Thanks so much for that, Anthony. And uh, no doubt that uh, the uh, development of uh, therapies continued and we'll be discussing here the subsequent development regarding the immunotherapy platform. And uh, we go back one more time just to put a little bit of context over here. What uh, Dr. Koweri just brought to us is atezolizumab plus bevizumab. You can see it falling under the uh, BCLC-C and partly under the BCLC-B. And we're going to talk about that part as well. But you can see from there, there's been a lot of therapies that really, as we said, going along in parallel almost for the tyrosine kinase inhibitor and the checkpoint inhibitors. With this said, we're going to touch on the other uh, combination therapy that is now a mainstay in regard to treatment of advanced HCC. The MLI study, if you recall, was looking into dervalumab and anti-PDL1 plus tremolumumab and anti-CTLA4 versus sorafenib. Again, same criteria, RSA-related HCC, uh, BCLC B or C, good performance test in the liver, chart UA, no prior therapy. This is the largest study ever, 1,200 patients that were originally looked into four uh, specific uh, uh, arms, and then it was revised. We have the Dervalumab single agent, anti-PDL1. We had Dervalumab plus Tremlumab with four doses of the Tremlumab that was revised after another study that's published already in JCO AZ22 that showed that the repeated dosing of Dervalumab was not any different from the single agent Dervalumab. Then we have the main arm of the study, Dervalumab plus Tremlumab, only one single dose of Tremlumab, and this was compared for superiority against sorafenib. So the main study was looking at Dervalumab plus Tremlumab single dose versus sorafenib, 
And the other was to compare Dervelumab to Serafinib looking for non-inferiority, of course, based on the data that we had from other studies that looked more showing that anti-PD-1 as single agent will not be any different from the use of tyrosine kinase inhibitor. The primary tool was survival, and it was positive in that regard. This, if anything, shows the three arms of the study. Uh, number one, you have the stride, which is the dark or almost blackish uh, dark blue, which showing an improvement in outcome, 16.4 uh, months. And this was compared, as we said, to sorafenib, which was 13.7 months, clinically as significant. Add to this, there was the 16. Five-month irrigate to Dervalumab compared to Serafin 13.7, non-inferior. You might say, like, and you can pose, like, how come this number or metric is higher than the metric of the Dervalumab Dervalumab? But remember, please, that this biostatistician will teach us that non-inferiority statistics is totally different from superiority, and we can't compare those two numbers per se. In regard to the PFS, uh, same as we just heard with the atezolumab map, admittedly because it takes a while until your cells are primed, your T cells are primed for that treatment, we didn't really, we weren't really surprised that there's no difference much uh, in regard to those three therapies. And uh, I would say that it is not really the player here. The player is truly the survival component, which was positive for that study. And for that, as we all know, this was presented right here at the GISCO uh, in San Francisco in 2022 in January, same like tomorrow in two days, two years ago. And at the same time, it was published, uh, approved, and uh, became an FDA therapy uh, in October the same year, 2022. Now... We did not stop there. This is the more important update on this study. Actually, we carried on in regard to survival. And as you can see here, we kind of, you know, see that there is continued improvement in regard to survival. Enough that now we have data at four years, 48 months, four years, still showing 25% of the patients on this stride or Dervalumab is still alive compared to, as you can see, only about 15% in regard to the sorafenib. So clearly, there's continued improvement in that regard. Now, one important component in regard to the single-agent dervalumab, because you might pause and say, wait a minute, the numbers look good. Why should I add the dervalumab? Interestingly, we revealed that further on that arm because ultimately, we can see that for the dervalumab single-agent, by four months, by four years, it was almost close to serafinib. There was clearly a separation between dervalumab and termalumab favoring it compared to the dervalumab as single agent by four years with those patients. Not only that, but uh, one important component, as you can see here at four years update on survival, everybody did benefit from therapy independent of the etiology being hep B or hep C, both are viral as well as the non-viral ones as well. Everybody did benefit from the therapy. Response rates were definitely there as well. We can see here that a, there was a subtle but still present complete response uh, in regard to the strategy about 3%. Add to this, a partial response was close to about 17% uh, in regard to the stride regimen. Stability of disease definitely was a player. Add to this, important to look into the time to response. You see it at the bottom, it was only two months. This is really extremely fast. Though we expect and speed that priming of the cells will take a while, but it's incredible that this was almost half the time that it will take for Sorafin to go to get the first response 
2.17 versus 3.78 month. In regard to adverse events, the classic and stand that we all know and we're familiar with in regard to the checkpoint emitters, but then self proudly because this is only checkpoint emitters we're using here, we can see that yes, maybe grade three and four, including some subtle diarrhea, less than 5% still, abdominal pain 1.3%, and the rash 1.5%. Understandably for the sorafenib, we had the classic adverse events that you can see with the sorafenib per se, and the ones that are really pertinently uh, brought up here are the ones that really work compared to the one of the stride regimen itself. So, understandably, this was not the only things that were going on, but we have the LEAP002 study that uh, uh, looked into uh, pembrolizumab plus lymvatinib, and if you recall, this one now looking into a anti-PD1 plus a anti-FGF slash VGF, uh, did not really fare as we can see over here, and it really showed there was no difference at all. Actually, surprisingly, the lymphatinib single arm did rather very well compared to what would have been anticipated with 19 months in survival. Uh, there is, and uh, we know it only in abstract format, but at this meeting of uh, the ASCO-GI, we have additional 12 months uh, follow-up. If you look into the abstract, you'll see that uh, the overall survival progression of your survival uh, outcomes remained uh, consistent with the primary presentation that was uh, ultimately, uh, first showed at the ESMO meeting in Paris 40 years ago. So, of course, we'll look more details tomorrow uh, in the abstract details. So with this, again, uh, another case to revisit, and this only to start to trigger some of the thoughts discussion. We have 66-year-old woman with chronic hepatitis B, presents with right upper quadrant pain, uh, ultrasound showed the liver mass, uh, NMRI revealed a 7-centimeter uh, Lyrat 5 lesion in the right lobe with satellite nodules, no vascular invasion, no mistake disease, sharp score A, exactly as Dr. Kowery just mentioned, good blood work with platelet 90,000, and taste and fur for transplant was recommended. Repeat imaging showed, however, progression increased in, in the dominant lesion, and now to 8 centimeter, and appears of two new lesions. Liver function remained sharp QA, but with Albi score moved from 1 to 2. ECOG still 0, AFP 42, and ECOG, the EGD endoscopy showed large varices uh, that really put patient at a bleeding risk. So food for thought here, how to build in the potential uh, eligibility criteria for those therapies that we just spoke about. And if anything, it will be important to recall that what if the patient showed up as a child QB? This is important to really look into this and see what we think in regard to uh, what the options of therapy might be as well. And uh, with this said, and before I carry on, I would like to reflect a little bit further on that case. And maybe, uh, Stacy, I'll just ask you, like, you know, something come to mind first. Uh, the child B story, uh, tell us more, uh, what's your current uh, intake on what will you give for patients with child B, if any? Yeah. So I think the majority of patients I see have child B disease. And so it's really important to have a comfort level right, with all these regimens and kind of think about the safety in this group. We do have some published data, you know, that's retrospective looking at safety um, in this patient population. And so I think, you know, also, right, B is a large range. So you have B789, and I think we all know that often the patients are in a real continuum. But for the patients that are 
doing fairly well, you know, they really are good candidates for, I think, for doublet immune therapy for with Atezolbev or Dervatremi. And we could talk about, you know, bleeding risk is kind of one of the main reasons to pick one or the other. Um, but really, those patients, I believe, should be treated with immune therapy. Sure, sure. And uh, Ahmed, uh, along the line of what uh, Dr. Stein brought up in regard to this or the other, where does the EGD that we just showed, which, you know, is a little bit nerving, what does CAF help you in regard to choice therapy? Yeah, so, so in general, um, the uh, endoscopy helps us uh, to a great deal, not only for atezobev, and I always tell my fellow that, that just the fact that atezobev study was the only one that necessitated EGD doesn't make linvatinib or cabo or any other antiangiogenesis, even sorafenib. Uh, any safer. So we always try to avoid, you know, hectic antiangiogenesis therapy in those patients and stick with immunotherapy, especially nowadays that we do have available options in front and even second line. So I would uh, avoid the risk of bleeding until we can get this addressed. And we have very good GI uh, procedures and even medical therapy with beta blockers. And so that, that goes back to the importance of multidisciplinary therapy for this disease setting, specifically this scenario. Fair enough. Thank you so much, Ahmed, for that. And anyway, you can see over here that ultimately this is one read on it. You can have different perspective. would love to hear it. But if anything, if the patient has any contraindication or not for the checkpoint inhibitors or immunotherapy, if there's none, you have the two choices. We already spoke about them. These are the current at least approved so far. We have the atezolizumab plus bevzumab. But please, please remember, as we just heard from Dr. Kasib, the endoscopy is a very critical component. And of course, the other one is dervilumab, trimlumab, or the stride regimen. Interestingly, now, combination therapy, even though it's a little bit soft, we say, like, what if they are eligible but not really for the doublet therapy, single agent might be play. I would say, however, interestingly, the use of add-on of, for example, the trimlumab single agent, we did not really know with experience that it really is going to make any manifestation that it will limit the patient from getting the doublet therapy. And of course, if the patients are not eligible for checkpoint inhibitors, let's say they have a certain um, autoimmune disease or transplant issues, etc., then uh, or post-transplant, in other words, then you have the lymvatinib and sorafenib. So we'll carry on. This has really continued uh, improvement with regard to uh, uh, data and outcomes. Uh, and delighted to see here that we have another combination therapy, cambrilizumab plus cervicerinib, which did improve survival in regard to first-line treatment HCC. As we can see here, this time 22 months in regard to survival for the cambrilizumab rivocerinib compared to 15.2 for the sorafenib. This data if anything, shows by understanding a certain uh, concern about adverse events, specifically, and I'll point on to the things that were brought up in regard to the reversarinib, specifically the hepatotoxicity and hypertension. To be fair, we're kind of like still digesting all of that and is still not yet FDA approved, but we'll see where this will take us in regard to how we're going to apply it in regard to the choices of therapy we have. Now, you might really wonder, like, how about this 22 month? Where does it stand, et cetera? To be fair, between the reversarinib plus camelizumab, the uh, atezolizumab plus bevzumab, and the dervilumab, tramilumab, probably they are all equal. After all, they really, if you look into the different etiologies and you kind of like wrap it up in a way, understandably, the HEP B patient will always fare best, followed by HEP C, followed by non-viral. But that does not mean that everybody does benefit. But it depends all about how much of the HEP B or HEP 
non-viral you have, your survival go up or go down. And that's where pretty much all of them become more of a nuanced gut. For example, the concern about the bleeding that you might have with the atuzumab, bevzumab, as one example per se. And here is more of a uh, nutshell summary, uh, looking into the data of the Ambrave 150 and the Himalaya, because these are the ones that, as we said, are approved. But it's important note over here that uh, what we are all trained with, with, of course, all the uh, experience that we have regarding the use of chemotherapy, we depend quite a bit on median survivals. And this is really what all those studies did meet their uh, primary point of median overall survival. But however, we know very well, as we mentioned already twice, the priming of the T cells takes time. That's why we are used to that lingo in regard to the checkpoint of terms of what we call in long tails on the curve. And what really come into play here are what we call landmark analyses. Landmark analysis is more of you define when you're going to look at survival and you pinpoint that specific uh, time on the frame, uh, frame of, on the frame of the uh, Kaplan-Meier curve, and said this is the difference, yes, here or not. And you can see probably for the two studies, there was difference at, for example, for the atuzumab, bevzumab at six months, at twelve months, at eighteen months, and then we carry on. As you can see for the Himalaya, we can carry on all the way to thirty-six months and for forty-eight months. The landmark analysis is going to be very important component showing you how the immune system is kind of like continue to gear up in regard to the responses that you're looking for for the benefit from therapy. And we encourage you to look at those kind of like analyze the data as well. With this said, we're going to carry on in regard to now what happens at progression. Sequential therapy recommendation, where you heard from Dr. McQuay in regard to the first part, but will entrust that you will help us and guide us in regard to what will be second life therapy. Anthony, back to you. Okay, another case for us to ponder here, the 60-year-old patient with BCLC stage C, Chalpu AHCC, receives frontline atezobev, progresses on treatment, and what are our options at this point? So going back to the BCLC uh, algorithm here, we're going to focus on the box post-first line, what I call it. And you see here the agents listed, ragorafenib, cabozant, which were all studied in the post sorafenib era, and we're going to go through that data. By default, they are now options that we are using post-IO as well. Uh, interestingly enough that this box does not include linvatinib or, rag, or, rag, or, um, or sorafenib per the BCLC uh, approach, but certainly in real life, those are being used as well in this space. Uh, and then certainly there is some usage of I.O. combinations post-I.O. in first line, which we're going to also look at a little bit. The biggest message, though, here is that there is very little evidence to go by. We do not have prospective randomized study in second line and beyond post-I.O. combinations. So let's visit the data that we have. These are the three phase three trials of agents that are utilized in second line and beyond. As I said, all studied in the post-sorafenib era. The resource trial looked at regorafenib versus placebo. Post-sorafenib in patients who tolerated sorafenib at a minimum dose of 400 milligrams or higher for a minimum of 20 days before enrolling. And the median OS here was 10.6 versus 7.8 months. Again, you see uh, a PFS improvement 
and the responses, the response rates here are in the single digits. Cabozatinib, the celestial trial, uh, a clear differentiator here is that one is this agent has a different mechanism of action. So beyond targeting the VEGF and FGF pathways, it targets MET and Axel as well, has some immunomodulatory effects. Uh, it was studied in second and third line. About a third of the patients were third line patients. Median OS of 10 months versus 8. It did not have a limit on prior sorafenib tolerability either. And then ramucirumab versus placebo in the REACH-2 study was limited to patients with an AFP of 400 or higher, also showing a survival benefit in that space. Now, as I said, these agents are being used now post-IO, but we really don't have prospective data. Here is a summary of, uh, of IO second lines. Uh, with Nevo single agent that was based on the accelerated approval from Checkmate 040, which was later on withdrawn due to the negative Checkmate 459 study in first line. Pembrolizumab uh, from the Keynote 224 study, again, showed a response rate of 18%. Uh, these are IO-naive patients, and the Keynote 359 study in Asia met its primary endpoint of OS, so Pembrolizumab kept its FDA label. And then we have Nevo plus IPI at IPI of 3 milligrams per kilograms from Checkmate 040, which showed a response rate of 32% and a median OS of 22 months post-sorafenib in second and third line. And this combination maintains its accelerated approval. So do we have data for using any and of these agents post-IO. As I said, we don't have prospective data. Uh, well, let me correct. We don't have randomized data. We have some prospective single site, small studies or retrospective experiences. Uh, and here are samples of those. The literature is peppered with these and there's even more abstracts of these. But here is a small study with Linvatinib post-IO showing a PFS of 3.7 months and a median OS of 12.8 months post-IO or IO combination. Small study, 53 patients. Cabozatinib, also post-IO. This study included both sharp UA and B, and median PFS of 2.1 month, median OS of 7.7 month. What's important, no one should be comparing these studies uh, across to each other and saying, oh, linvatinib looks better post-IO than cabozatinib. That's not the interpretation here. Um, these are separate studies different patients, this included CHALP-UB as well. All we're saying is there is a hint of activity based, based on these small studies, and these are fair agents to use at the moment, pending hopefully some more definitive data. Uh, there are other studies that are underway, including some prospective trials that we're, that we'll report in the near future of TKIs or TKIs plus PD-1 post-IO, and those will be interesting to see. What about Nevo-Epi post-IO in first line? There's a couple of small studies that have been reported. This is a multi-center retrospective study with only 10 patients. The response rate here was about 20% or so. The median PFS was 2.9 months, median OS 7.4 months. So certainly doesn't look as good as Checkmate 040 in patients who were IO naive. 
there was a similar small, smaller study with a similar PFS, actually a bigger study, 30 patients or so, with a similar PFS and an OS of nine months. So that's the range we are looking at with a, with a, with a response rate between 20 and 30%. But hopefully we will have some prospective data as well. So going back to the case, the 60-year-old who progressed on atezolbev, what options would we think of for sequential therapy? And so maybe let's ask colleagues here. So patient progressed on atezolbev, how do you pick your next agent, Stacey? So usually I would start with a TKI, linvatinib, and then go through in order the way I would have before, before we had IO therapy, um, typically. Okay. Is there anything that would make you pick anything else besides linvatinib? Um, not in particular. The only thing I would say is that, you know, occasionally we, I have someone on a Tizobev and they have progression in one small area. And, you know, I think sometimes we think about even controlling things with other modalities than if they're overall doing really well on a TZOBEV and most of the disease is controlled. That's a controversial statement, but I just put it uh, Local, right. local <laughs> control, you mean? For, okay. Uh, Ahmed, if the patient had gotten first-line Dervatremi, does, does it change the sequence in second-line and beyond for you? Yeah, so if you got Dervatremi and then tolerated it well, immunotherapy, no complications you know, related to immunotherapy, for example, then the field is wide open. You know, I, sometimes I go to atezobev. You know, after that, uh, if they had issues with immunotherapy, we cannot use it anymore. Then you know, go for TKIs. And as Stacy said, you know, most of us would uh, still revisit. You know, the frontline like linvatinib, for example. Um, and most of the time, these patients they, have, they go through some liver malfunction or not the same liver that started. So we always try to go lower dose of tyrosine kinase inhibitors and then escalate. Most of us do this. Yeah, fair point, fair point. Uh, and then as far as future directions, I think what I alluded to, I think the biggest questions being asked currently, does continuation of anti-PD-1 therapy with the addition of TKI matter or just TKI alone? Does PD-1 CTLA-4 post atezobev work? How well does it work? These are some of the questions being asked and hopefully new agents being developed in this, in this space as well. No, thanks so much, Anthony. And you're right that we don't have necessarily all the data that we, have, we know about that. I think two pieces of information that Dr. Query wrote up in regard to the lymphatic capacitinib as a being afterthought as second-line therapy is one of the minute information that we have regard to lining up. But also what uh, uh, was brought up, suggested by Ad Orsi, even Dr. Kassab brought up as, yeah, maybe he might use it, which is repeated checkpoint inhibitors used. Still, we don't have the idea of that, but no doubt that we can visit the idea that before, because the mechanisms are different, we might really bring to that. With this said, uh, we're going to carry on now to the multiple, multimodal combination approaches in the advanced disease. And this is what already Dr. Stein gave us a little bit of an idea on. But really, one more time, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Stein officially, State Stein, Associate Professor of Medicine, Assistant Medical Director of the Clinical Trials Office and leader of the Hepatobiliary Program at Yale School of Medicine, New Haven, Connecticut. Stacey, all yours. Oh, thanks. Okay, so... I think this is a really exciting area to talk about. So we go from the BCLC staging system where systemic therapy is kind of in a box after local therapy before supportive, best supportive care. 
And now we kind of think about how can we, so first I'll talk about how we can combine things really with systemic therapy, and then we'll talk more about how maybe we move some systemic therapy into earlier stages. So I think this is really where a lot of the future of, of treatment is. So we'll start with the launch study, which looked at adding linvatinib to TACE and advanced HCC. So patients with advanced HCC that had to have at least one measurable um, lesion, a single tumor less than 10 centimeters or multiple tumors, but the tumor burden was less than 50%. Um, they could have portal vein tumor embolus or extrahepatic uh, metastases, good liver function, good performance status. Over 300 patients were on this study, and they were randomized to the combination of lenvatinib and TACE versus lenvatinib with a primary endpoint of overall survival. And, you know, basically you could see that there's clearly a separation of the curves in the middle there where it does look like the patients with TACE have a longer median overall survival and longer progression-free um, survival, which is really, um, I think, thought-stimulating of, you know, what is the benefit in patients that you would not typically give local therapy to, right, in giving it in this setting? Is it that we are taking away some of the tumor burden? Are we creating more of an abscopal effect where we're releasing antigens that allow the systemic therapy to be more effective, right? I don't know the answer, but clearly there was some benefit. But now we say, okay, well, we're not typically using lenvatinib at first line, but we'll come to talk about other studies. Also wanted to mention tumor treating fields. So this is an antimitotic therapy. Um, you know, obviously our cells have... Um, charged ions, and if you could use alternating electric fields, right, you could potentially disrupt these particles during mitosis where you're um, stimulating cell death in di dividing cells but not in quiescent cells. Um, and these fields are frequency-tuned to target dividing cancer cells. There's different frequency um, for different cancer types, and the effects are, you know, inversely related to the cell size. So for HCC, um, the frequency is 150 kilohertz. And there is a study, uh, a phase two study called HEPANOVA that looked at advanced or unresectable HCC using these fields uh, concurrent with first-line serafinib. Um, and there were patients that received um, these fields with serafinib and then patients that received for longer periods of time. That was definitely um, promising. But of course, again, you could say, well, we're not using first-line serafinib anymore. But fortunately, there is a phase three trial that's being planned looking at the combination with Atizo and BEV. Um, and so I think that will be something to watch out for in the future. And then, of course, looking at SBRT followed by serafinib. Um, so uh, we see that SBRT followed by serafinib improves survival versus serafinib alone. Um, and again, this is, I think, hypothesis generating of what the mechanism is of doing local therapy added to systemic therapy. Um, but of course, you know, in my mind, I'd like to see the role of SBRT in more of the first-line treatments that we're using. Also wanted to mention um, another emerging multi-modal um, option of the um, auto uh, device, which is low-energy electromagnetic fields. So, so far has shown safety in patients with advanced HCC, and we'll probably see more um, 
more data in the future. Wonderful. Thanks so much, uh, Cecil, for that. And we'll uh, look into the harmonizing therapeutic strategies in early intermediate stage CC. And of course, one more time with the impact of immunotherapy, if any. And uh, it's still going to help us with the combining of the uh, uh, local therapy and systemic therapy in the immune stage. So Stacey, again, please. Yeah. So I really like this space to kind of think about, right, what are we doing in systemic therapy um, and how can we bring that forward, right, for patients potentially with earlier stage um, disease. So we'll start with a case. This is a patient with intermediate stage HCC, a 65-year-old man um, who has child PUA disease, great performance status, and has imaging that shows cirrhosis with two lesions and the largest is eight centimeters. So we're going to think about what factors would we consider um, when selecting treatment for this patient. Is this patient suitable for TACE? Um, what about local regional therapy in combination with systemic therapy? So what is the rationale for combining these? Well, intermediate stage, right, is a very heterogeneous group of patients. And so you have a large range of tumor burden, distribution, and underlying liver function. And the efficacy of local therapy is really affected by the tumor burden. So we say that there's a group and we put them in this one category in the staging system, but we all know that this is really a very large group of patients that we would like to define better. By waiting to do treatment, we risk the miss, missing the opportunity for systemic therapy, right, if their liver function deteriorates after, after local therapy. And I think when we only had serafinib as a drug and patients used to get many lines of local therapy, this is often what happened. Um, systemic therapy has level one evidence for improved survival and higher response rates than we used to see. And also, right, by starting effect, effective therapy early, earlier, we could potentially increase survival, start treatment before possible liver decompensation, right, and potentially increase cure. So I just bring up, this is one prognostic score for thinking about taste because I think there's a large interest in better defining patients to understand out of this large group of people who would be better served by taste, who would be better served by systemic therapy or possible combination. And so basically in this group, they stratified patients and um, have, a, have more of a score that could be assigned based on um, the size of tumor, et cetera. And so you could see that there's improved survival, right, when we think about patients falling into a more specific category. And I think this um, diagram shows very nicely, right, how all of these patients are not equal. So we could think about the size of the tumor and we could think of the number of tumors. And of course, when you get to that bottom right side where the patients have multiple large tumors, I think everyone would agree that that patient would be better served by systemic therapy. But the question is, where exactly do you draw this line? You know, and so I think starting to think about a scoring system where we could put patients in and think about them in more of a zone, right, of when it might be better to move to systemic therapy would make the decision-making easier. So thinking about systemic therapy um, you know, versus taste, so there's a study of linvatinib um, versus taste. 
where you could see that the overall survival was improved by giving um, linvatinib as opposed to local therapy. Um, and I think this is really uh, was of a lot of interest. And of course, now we think, well, what can we do with the combination therapy that we're currently using in first line? There is an ongoing phase three study of Atizo and Bev versus TACE in intermediate patients, um, and uh, which is accruing over 400 patients, and also a study of regorafenib plus pembrolizumab versus TACE in the same patient population. And um, I think these will be important studies to uh, see in the future. There's also been several studies looking at TACE plus um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, you know, some of these studies have been terminated already. Um, it's uh, unfortunately, you know, they didn't show a benefit. Um, but I think that, you know, these were important studies to do. Um, also, they, I think, gave people a lot of exposure to working with IR and doing these trials, um, you know, in combination as a team. There's also the phase two tactics trial that looked at taste and serafinib that did not show a survival benefit over taste alone, but potentially had some meaningful overall survival prolongation, and the PFS was improved. So, of course, the more exciting uh, data to look at is local regional therapy plus immunotherapy. And I think there's a lot of things that we don't know, for instance, which local therapy is more immunogenic. So is combining Y90 or TACE or SBRT going to have more of an effect? Um, what's the optimal timing of the checkpoint blockade relative to local regional therapy, right? What kind of sequence the, should it be given in? Are there biomarkers to predict response? Um, given that we don't have biomarkers for any of the treatment decisions we're making, I think we know the answer to that, but it'd be great if we had some. And of course, as I mentioned before, right, there's a lot of interest in understanding is the synapscopal effect, and um, we certainly do need more data. I wanted to mention the Emerald 1 study. So this is gervalimab plus bevacizumab combined with TACE. That's shown a PFS benefit um, for local regional HCC. This study was for patients not amenable to curative therapy. Um, it did include patients with B7 disease, good performance score, um, and no evidence of extrahepatic disease. Um, they were randomized to taste plus derva plus BEV versus taste plus derva versus taste alone. And as of November, we know that the trial met its primary endpoint, showing a meaningful improvement in PFS, um, and OS continues to be assessed, and um, this study will be presented tomorrow afternoon, so I'm sure we'll all be looking forward to seeing that. The Emerald 3 study is looking at the combination of Derva and Tremi with or without linvatinib in combination with TACE and lo local regional HCC, so similar criteria, and the patients are randomized to TACE plus Derva plus Tremi plus linvatinib. Um, versus taste plus derva and tremi versus taste alone. And the primary endpoint is looking at progression-free survival in the first versus the third arm. And then the secondary endpoint is looking at PFS in um, the second and, and third and overall survival. 
Um, the LEAP012 study, so this was, again, linvatinib plus Pembro, but now in combination with TACE. And patients um, were randomized to uh, linvatinib plus Pembro plus TACE versus a placebo um, plus TACE. And um, this study has been uh, close to accrual. And uh, this is just a list of some other ongoing trials of immunotherapy with local regional therapy. This is something that everyone is interested in. Um, so there's multiple combinations looking at uh, Ipinevo, Nevo, Derva plus Bev, Derva plus Tremi, um, looking at combinations with Tear, Y90, Debtase, Taste. So, you know, it might be a little bit hard after all of this data is reported to really um, factor out, right, what what is kind of the best combination or what's the best local therapy, and we may not have a clear answer from this, but I think it is exciting that there's so much exploration in this, um, in this area. So I think this will be a good discussion. Um, going back to this uh, patient with advanced cirrhosis, they have two lesions. The largest is eight centimeters. So in your own practice... Do you think that this is a patient, if you were discussing at your tumor board, would be treated with, with TACE alone? And, you know, would you consider a clinical trial for this patient of local regional therapy um, with immunotherapy? So we'll, we'll, let's start with those questions. Anthony, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, yes, this is a patient where there's two concerns. One is there's more than one lesion, and there is a large lesion that's eight centimeters. So for taste, this is a patient where you'd be worried about the effectiveness, and you would be worried about how many tastes do you need to get complete control. Is that going to worsen liver function, as you mentioned earlier? So it's certainly a patient I would be very motivated to enroll in a combination-type trial uh, to see if, if this would be beneficial. I'll just say one other statement. The challenge with these combination trials, as you said, in this stage B, is that it's a very heterogeneous group of patients. So we're going to eventually have to tease out who's benefiting from the combination approach. Is it everyone, or is it really a higher-risk subgroup within that space? And that we don't know yet. Absolutely. Ahmed, what do you think? Yes, it's very, very... Um a familiar scenario, right? So in clinic, these are the patients we see, right? You, you rarely see those patients with single small lesions, straightforward taste. So as Anthony said, you know, most of the time with these patients, uh, we think outside the box. So one of the questions here is about liver status and cirrhosis. If it was a concern, definitely I would avoid local therapy and move straight. This is, this, this is one of the cases where Despite the absence of vascular invasion or METs, it's not BCLCC. We still do systemic therapy for it because of these concerns. However, if you have a patient in excellent shape, you have good IR team, they tell you they can get you know, the tumor load with one session safely, whether with TACE or others, uh, we usually give them you know, a chance but get a short-term follow-up and have a low threshold to switch to systemic because unless it's child PUA, PS0 and all of that, some patients actually could uh, deteriorate after these procedures. So this is another perfect example of multidisciplinary discussion at the tumor board. Yeah. And Ghassan, what if this patient had child PUB disease? What would you, would that change your decision? Sure. Uh, so if the child PUB, uh, as we know, and this is one question that actually one of our colleagues already brought up, 
if it is a B7, probably have a certain comfort zone in regard to systemic therapy. And I would say, I would second what uh, Dr. Kasser brought up in regard to the use of systemic therapy. I might not necessarily agree on your second part, which is let's give it a chance, because clearly we saw from Kudo's study that lenvatinib fared way better than the local therapy based on the beyond up seven criteria that actually Dr. Stein brought up. So I definitely would say lenvatinib, sure. Yeah. So what do we think about the future for combining these in intermediate and advanced HCC? You know, I personally think that some of these studies are going to be positive. You know, I think it's going to be hard to know, right, exactly who we move on to with combination. But I'd love to get everyone's thoughts on that. Yeah, this is a very, very um, a unique setting here where, you know, we were talking about when to do systemic for patients who are candidates for local therapy. Now the switch in the field is when can we do local therapy for those patients who are candidates for systemic, which is advanced HCC. Yeah. And the rationale here is you control the liver tumors, delay liver failure, and improve survival, and launch study is a perfect example. So I really think this is where the field is going to be heading there because we know we reached kind of the glass ceiling for certain combinations. So unless we combine local and systemic carefully, so it has to be randomized with very, very strict stratification criteria, very strict entry criteria for Albi score and, and, and child pew. So we have to be very careful as we move to this area. I'm going to make another controversial statement to just say, you know, maybe we actually move some patients to resection or transplant, right, with doing combination therapy earlier instead of waiting till they progress on local regional therapy to go to systemic. But that's, you know, obviously not, not the goal of any of these studies or the primary endpoints of any of these studies. But uh, Please go ahead, Anthony. Sorry, yeah. um, I, I think the challenge in the field, though, because this is exciting and because it's an area of unmet need, there's always this kind of tug of war between rushing to implement these combinatorial approaches versus actually doing it systematically and learning from the trials. And I think it behooves us as a community to try to do this the right way, learn from it, implement it correctly, because there are toxicity implications, there are financial implications for patients. So we want to really want to be, do it in a responsible way. No, I definitely second all what's being said. That I would admit is not necessarily controversial. We have the kind of uh, the ingredients. It's a matter of just seeing the results exactly as Anthony is bringing up. And uh, for example, we already have seen uh, the efforts in regard to the combinations with, uh, I think the oldest was the sorafenib. It did not necessarily work. We'll see tomorrow if it's going to work or not. I think the science argued that probably it's going to work, but we just have to wait the data tomorrow. We all can't wait to see it uh, for the Emerald One. Uh, but on the other hand, you bring a very important point, uh, Stacey. Ultimately, I think all those kind of, you know, efforts, uh, to second what Ahmed said in regard to the multidisciplinary team approach, I would say that the staging used to be a one-way street. In HCC specifics, becoming two-way street. We can definitely visit all of that at the same time, and we can reverse when patients might start with a certain systemic therapy and go back to a certain local therapy per se. And ironically, even we know very well, we had actually... Uh, uh, complete responses on systemic therapy. Actually, uh, I don't remember, but somebody asked me, like, uh, on Durofatromy, after four years, what if, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 we said, well, there's complete response. We said, there's no need for surgery anymore. You're done. So that's what could happen as well. So by all means, these are very important points. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. And with this, we're going to carry on to the last part of our program, and we'll uh, invite Dr. Ahmed Kasib 
who is the uh, John and Dorothy Harris Professorship in Gastrointestinal Cancer Research, a member of the uh, Habitability Task, Task Force of the NCI, and then Professor and Director of the ACC Program and Director of the MD Anderson's Poor for the Department of GI Medical Oncology at University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Ahmed, please tell us all about recent development in combination immunotherapy with surgery. Thank you, Hassan. And, uh... Thank you very much, and uh, we all understand that this is the last session between you and conclusion of um, so, uh, the, the event tonight. So we try to put it in a way that we can pivot to a, a different patient population here, uh, talk about combination uh, strategies and uh, systemic therapy in early stage disease. And who would have thought this you know, f a few years ago that we're going to be talking about systemic therapy introduction in um, earlier stages, surgical patient population. And whether you're you know, a surgeon, oncologist, or hepatologist, department chair, or fellow, I, I hope this session will stimulate our thinking about future um, uh, for systemic therapy in HCC. So uh, I'm gonna go quickly in 30 seconds um, about two um, very important uh, points, um, pathognomonic features in HCC to set the stage for this uh, section here, because here we're talking about patients who are amenable for cure, right? So those patients are getting surgical option, meaning going for cure, so we really don't wanna do anything detrimental to their health status or even to uh, put their surgery at risk. So two pathognomonic features in HCC will help us understand uh, the, the future in this area. One is, this is a VEGF-mediated angiogenesis uh, tumor, so all the tumors are very vascular by definition, rapid washout, so very specific arterial supply, 90% to the tumors, while the normal liver is getting it from the portal vein. So that's the uh, angiogenesis cascade. Then we have the immune microenvironment here, which is turned off, right? So rich environment, but they're all turned off because this is an immune tolerant organ, uh, getting all the supply from the portal circulation with the gut microbiomes and uh, bacteria and so on, so it has the immune cells have, have to be turned off. So the, these two pathognomonic features will help us um, explain which agents you should we pick and choose and will help us understand those evolving trials. So um, as we have done in the prior sections here, just listing a case here, and we're gonna revisit uh, the case at the end. This is a 50-year-old man with a history of MASH, as we all know, the metabolic-associated stereohepatitis. The, the, the uh, uh, term has changed over time. Presented with large unifocal HCC, 7.5 centimeters, no vascular invasion or metastasis, child PA, bilirubin is normal, albumin INR, platelet count. So this is a, a perfect situation for surgery. Underwent resection was found to have extensive microvascular invasion and moderately to poorly differentiated pathology. So we're gonna come back to it, but just you know, to stimulate the discussion here, uh, the question here is, would you use adjuvant therapy here or local regional therapy afterwards? And is the patient candidate uh, for immunotherapy via clinical trial? So needless to say, with the emergence of immunotherapy uh, and the fact that I talked about uh, that this is an immune-rich um, microenvironment, immunotherapy is a no-brainer. We have to start using it if we're going for clinical trial in this setting. And the um, number to remember is the immune class here, multiple studies looked into that, and it's about 25-30%. 
that this ringer build, this is actually the maximum response rate that we have been able to achieve with any systemic therapy, whether single agent or double agents, right? Nevo, AP, um, atezobev, any combination strategy, uh, we, no, we, we never cross this bar. So this could explain at least partially why 30% response rate is our glass ceiling here and shifts our focus to this area here. How can we try to overcome this resistance to immunotherapy? So one of the mechanisms to overcome resistance to immunotherapy is the VEGF. And this is, again, because this is one of the pathognomonic features for HCC. Lots of mechanisms were explained before, even before using the combination in HCC, such as priming and the activation of the immune cells, uh, improving the vascularity and the infiltration of the T cells. So there is very strong rationale to combining this. And the concept itself has been validated in advanced HCC by the approval of atezobev, for example. And, you know, needless to say, we talked about this a little bit with, you know, uh, uh, Stacy talked about the use of local and systemic therapy together because the reason for uh, death in our patient population is liver failure because of progression of the hepatic tumors there. So the main rationale for also trying to do new adjuvant or adjuvant therapies in HCC is to lower the incidence of local recurrence because that's eventually the cause of the liver failure. Very quickly here uh, about the hepatic resection uh, standard of care and again reflecting why HCC is different from any other cancer, even other primary cancers such as cholangiocarcinoma, for example, and that's because most of the patients have underlying cirrhosis. So this is going to reflect on um, two main uh, things here when it comes to surgery. Number one, not only the tumor size or location, but also the status of the liver disease. And by that, I don't mean just child pew uh, status, but also the portal hypertension. And you're going to see very specific parameters here in terms of the um, hepatic um, uh, pressure and in addition to the platelet count and so on. So these criteria have been established long, long time ago because patients who are beyond those criteria, they didn't do well at all after surgery. So the platelet count has to be above 100,000. Bilirubin would be normal. And these patients, even with that, they have to have at least 40% of liver remnant. And if you're a surgeon, um, routinely you use portal vein embolization to induce enlargement and hypertrophy of the left liver if you have less than 40% in a cirrhotic liver. So the recurrence here is directly linked to the uh, pathologic features here. And these studies, all of them repeatedly showed that the size of the tumor, if it is a single tumor, or the number of the tumors can really dictate the rate of the recurrence after uh, a resection of hepatocellular carcinoma. And that's how the definition of high-risk features came, came, came on board. And we're going to see this in a couple of slides. So this is the I'm Brave 050 study, and the design was revolving around the use of anti-VEGF checkpoint inhibitors, atezobev, um, and uh, looking to randomization one-to-one, -one, um, active surveillance versus atezobev for one full year. And the high-risk features here, we talked about it a little bit, uh, one tumor more than five centimeters, more than three tumors, and uh, microvascular invasion on the pathologic uh, uh, specimen or minor vascular invasion and imaging, um, and then also grade three and four pathologies, so moderately and poorly differentiated uh, tumors. So these are the high-risk features that were shown repeatedly um, over more than uh, two, three decades to be directly correlating with higher risk of recurrence.
And this is the um, study results here. So the pre-specified endpoints in terms of the hazard ratio and p-value were met. Um, hazard ratio of 0.72, p-value 0.12. And you will notice here that the benefit was maximum in the first year here, and then you start the curves um, 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 meeting in the second year. So there was less effectiveness uh, to prevent recurrence in the second year. And um, if you look actually at the historically um, high-risk features versus intermediate and low, um, the, um, this is uh, falling along the line of the intermediate. So it's almost like we were just delaying the, uh, the recurrence rate with this regimen rather than eliminating it. So we need more follow-up. And the question here will come, uh, of course, is uh, should we do more than a, a year in future clinical trials, such as other diseases, melanoma, for example, they do for two years. Or should we even, you know, be more, more pragmatic and to, do it before surgery, where the tumor is there, the microenvironment is active, rather than waiting for the resection and do new adjuvant approach? So these are the questions that, you know, um, were raised after we saw these results and we're waiting for more, you know, mature data here um, to finalize the conclusion of the adjuvant strategy and for the regulatory appro approval, of course, by FDA and regulatory agencies. Along the same line, Emerald 2 here, looking at adjuvant DERVA, based therapy, so DERVA plus or minus BEV versus placebo, and PIMPRO versus placebo, NEVO versus placebo. So these are the landmark studies we're waiting for. All of them are evolving around either checkpoint inhibition or plus or minus anti-VEGF. And then, of course, we have to ask the question uh, uh, of tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Are we ever going to bring them back? You know, we know that sorafenib and other studies were negative, but now that we learned more about the pathognomonic features of HCC and we had very specific um, approvals with combination strategies, anti-VEGF and checkpoint inhibitors, we expect to see the, uh, 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 the, the return of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. However, because of the link to anti-angiogenesis and also combination synergy uh, here with immunotherapy, we expect to have this combination strategy, even with tyrosine kinase inhibitors, to synergize the effect in the microenvironment. So let's go back to the case here after what we have learned now about what's going on in terms of um, the uh, strategies in the surgical space, the rationale for it, the very high risk. We saw 50 to 70% recurrence after two to three years. So let's revisit the case again. The 50-year-old man with MASH doesn't have hepatitis history, and the um, uh, resected tumor showed extensive microvascular invasion, and the differentiation was grade three to four. So we're going to go, you know, starting with Stacy. Stacy here, what, what do you think we should do? If you see this patient in your clinic and the patient is asking you what to do, should I go on any therapy, what would be your answer? I, I think this is a good discussion to have with the patient to offer adjuvant therapy. I think, you know, it's not clear, right, exactly how much benefit there is. And you could argue that you could always start treatment after recurrence. But I think that Psychologically, the difference of being on adjuvant therapy versus first-line systemic therapy is a huge difference. So I don't think that should be underestimated. But of course, there is a risk with treatment of you know adverse events. And so I think you really have to have that kind of informed dis discussion with someone. But I think you know for someone who's only 50 years old, um, and is motivated to kind of do anything that they can to decrease recurrence, I, I think that this is, 
really something to discuss and offer. Yeah. Anthony, what do you think? We all get asked this question yeah. all the time. We, we are in a limbo period where this has become actually quite difficult, right? So first, we don't have regulatory approval for a Tezovev in the adjuvant setting. So it makes it a challenge to even obtain that option. As you alluded to, Ahmed, I think the challenge also, yes, there is a separation with recurrence-free survival at 12 months. Is it really going to be sustained with longer follow-up? I understand the OS may be murky because that trial allowed crossover, but at least can we see a sustainability of the reduction of recurrence uh, beyond that 12 months? Then it becomes more convincing that it's really worthwhile exposing the patients to the risk. So I, I describe it a limbo period. Yes, I still try to have these discussions, but I tell patients most likely, especially where I practice in California, we won't get it approved by most insurance providers. Well, Hassan, concluded for us. Well, uh, I would say that uh, I'm kind of surprised slash not surprised at the hesitance that we all are having got to the data because understandably there's a little bit of a not that clear understanding about what we're trying to really prevent here. Is it really any leftover disease? Is it a recurrence or is it really a de novo disease? And these are two entities that do truly exist for regard to HCC. I would say to fair justice, we have to wait for the final manuscript to see exactly what really are details over there. But uh, at the same time, uh, I'm not really, but hearing all of us are showing that hesitancy in regard to what does that data mean in regard to the Atizubev and the Ambrave 050. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that's a great point. And for, you know, young audience here and our fellows, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Abu Alpha is talking about it, the mode, it's bimodal kind of, you know, recurrence that we see, you know, difference of recurrent disease in the first to second year versus later. So most of the time, first year recurrences are, as he, Dr. Hassan Abu um, Alpha said, it's, you know, remnant disease, micrometastasis, but if the recurrence is happening after a year or two, that's new primaries. And the question here is, would adjuvant therapy ever do anything to, to this? So I think this is going to be up to us when, when we see the mature data from the uh, atezobev and look at this early versus late stage and understand it a little better. So moving on to the new adjuvant, we talked a little bit about this, the new adjuvant approach. There are a couple of studies I'm going to you know, go through quickly. Uh, this study here um, uh, was uh, looking at the NIVO versus NIVO epi and um, pilot study. Uh, 10 patients ended up resected in, in both arms. So it was only six weeks of therapy, one arm NIVO, AP, one arm NIVO, and then followed by surgery. And there was two time points of sampling tissue and blood, and uh, six patients out of the 23 in each arm achieved major pathologic response. In fact, five of them um, were found to have complete response. Um, so uh, this opened the idea of new adjuvant approaches in terms of the ability of uh, affecting the microenvironment, modulation of the microenvironment, why the tumor is there and there is tense infiltration. In fact, CD8 positive T cell infiltration we found out was uh, a direct um, uh, link to response uh, in these patients who responded and ended up with the major response and never recurred. Similar study with Cabo Nevo was done at Hopkins here that out of 15 patients, high-risk patients did not start as resectable by definition, and 12 of them were downsized, and they ended up going successful surgery. And four out of the 12, again, 30%, right? The number keeps coming back. Um, were found to have major pathologic response, more than 90% necrosis, and one had complete response. And this is another study we're uh, conducting with atezobev in the, the same uh, new adjuvant with three, three cycles. 
So the question here is, what, what do the recent data, we talked about the adjuvant um, uh, therapy um, um, uh, with atezobev and other studies that we're waiting for, uh, what does this mean for the uh, future uh, of patients who undergo surgical resection? Because we, as we all know, they're very, they have very high risk for recurrence and would um, the evolution of the new adjuvant therapy change that? Maybe this could change the natural history, especially in those responders. Hassan was talking about this upfront, those who have you know, complete response. Should we even do surgery for them? That's even more pragmatic question. And then the question here is just like rectal cancer, right? How can we decide on complete response without having surgery? So this is going to be very critical with the AI and everything with our radiologists, PET scan, maybe circulating tumor DNA. So again, for our young investigators here, this is the area is wide open now for these kinds of studies, new adjuvant and then defining your uh, pathologic response um, in a non-invasive way. Um, so that's, you know, one uh, issue here. And the other is if the adjuvant atezobib regimen is approved, would that affect future clinical trials here? So maybe we can, you know, start with these, you know, two points here and our, you know, um, um, uh, panel here would be perfect to answer that, starting with Stacy about, you know, if adjuvant uh, atezobib got approved now and you're designing a clinical trial, how would that affect your trial design? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's something very nice about a neoadjuvant study that we actually will have tissue to look at, you know, and really see, right, the effects of the response. I think it'll be really important just to go to the neoadjuvant study, you know, to really understand better, is tumor necrosis a meaningful endpoint that really changes survival? Um, who is benefiting from this the most, you know, and then being able to follow them. So I think the, the longer data that we have in, in randomized studies is going to be really important. I think, you know, honestly, even if adjuvant atezobev is approved, obviously we already discussed that the results are not so overwhelming that we have answered this question in the field, right? Far from it. I think it's just generating that we can do these studies and that they need to be done and that we need to push systemic therapy right into this space. And so I think it just fuels the interest even more to have more studies in this space. I don't think it's necessarily right stopping, you know, any future studies. Yeah, I do second that very much. And uh, I admit, as we we're saying, all of us, it's really still a very rather controversial component. So with this, we're going to, again, thank everybody. And the take-home messages for you today are, number one, there's no doubt continued advances in combination therapy with NTPD1, NTPD1 scaffold of therapy that already we heard quite a bit about. Funny enough that we're living this as we speak. Already we have data we're all awaiting for, for tomorrow, for example, with Emerald One. Uh, a thorough analysis in the context of the study-specific demographics is always needed. We did not talk much about that, except I alluded to the fact that, you know, based on the etiology of the disease, you might have different outcomes, and that's really why you have to look not only as the metric of what is the survival, but look into who are the patients in that specific study. Sequential therapy is an evolving field. I think that query gave us quite a bit of input regard to maximizing the options, which is, of course, is our obligation, and many of you already asked us questions in regard to that. 
Number two is combination therapy, as Dr. Stein brought up, is an evaluation underway. As we just said, we're going to hear a little bit more about it tomorrow. And ultimately, the integrating with systemic therapy in early stage disease, as Dr. Kassip said, may evolve based on ongoing clinical studies. So a lot to go, a lot to happen, but if anything, we are definitely on the right path for that purpose. So with this said, we have uh, close to about seven minutes or so, but we'll try to cover some of the questions. And uh, number one is I'm going to ask, actually, uh, my colleagues, uh, these are your questions. Now I'm just passing on the questions to our colleagues over here. And uh, if anything, Stacy, uh, the concern that being brought up in regard to the combination of local therapy and the checkpoint inhibitors, Anything in regard to adverse events, side effects you will think of might be an issue, as we might see tomorrow. Yeah. Right, sure. I mean, obviously, there's a concern that there could be more, you know, hepatic decompensation potentially with giving combined therapy. Um, I think, you know, we need to know if it increases the risk of more immune-related adverse events, right? If there's more antigen release, how does that affect things? So, and so I think, you know, the expectation is there's probably some increase, but the question is, right, how, how much are we kind of going to be willing to tolerate, you know, for that benefit? Sure, sure. No, thanks for that. Ahmed, you brought this up, and one of our colleagues brought it up again here. Uh, you have very seasonal in school, and you treat the patient when you'll be ready to add the atezolizumab vizumab again? Yes, that's a great question. So we always necessitate to have... Or, or if you decide to that. Yeah. <laughs> so they have to have a, a scope that shows two things, healing of the varices and no more risk for bleeding. Unfortunately, it takes, we all know, it takes like three, four scopes one month apart. It takes a long time. And we, if you have good... GI team developing an algorithm for you to look at the beta blocker approaches and so on, that would be even better. So combining that with also good cardiology team to look into what to add uh, for these patients for hypertension management, there are some evolving data about the ACE and R inhibitors, not just for angiogenesis, but also the effect and actually improving immunotherapy outcome with ARB and immunotherapy, reversing some um, resistance. So it's a multidisciplinary approach. Not only GI, but you really have to have GI, hepatology, even cardiology. So more than ever nowadays, these are the things that every team should focus on. You should have a, a, a team up with good GI, one cardiologist, one hepatologist, so that way you can communicate about these issues. Because as Hassan said, this could be a a fraction of a second decision. The patient is in the waiting in, in, in the clinic in, in your room, and the decision to add BEV or not could mean massive bleeding for them. So in my mind, I always tell them just let, let us discuss it together. Let's get another scope to be on the safe side. Patients hate it just to get another scope, but I think it's always safer to double check. Fair enough. Anthony, question for you. There are a lot of questions, actually, and to be fair, there's not something necessarily that we touched on quite a bit, but you are highly experienced at the record, and the question is, tumor markers, biomarkers, ctDNA, et cetera, et cetera, got to HCC. Where does it stand? What shall we tell our colleagues? Yeah. I mean, really, it continues to be a, a very evolving field. As you know, we really don't have predictive biomarkers for IO in almost any tumor type, uh, except small, like in lung, maybe pdl one expression matters. Uh, in HCC, that hasn't panned out. The, if you look at the aggregate of the data, inflamed tumors, as you mentioned in your algorithm, may be more prone to respond to IO therapy. And usually that's looked at based on CD8 T-cell infiltration, 
uh, and a couple of other metrics, uh, sometimes looking at gene expression, see if some of the, end, uh, the inflammatory pathways are upregulated, they may prime the tumor microenvironment. The problem, we cannot test this easily in the clinic and decide how to treat a patient. So more work has to be done. Uh, it's now all kind of retrospective and, and has to be validated. Uh, there's really not much else clinically that we can go by at the moment. Yeah, uh, yeah no, you're absolutely right. But however, however, from all of this we can hear, if we don't have data, we'll never be able to tell. For that reason, despite that we have some cases who show what LIRAD, please remember that the LIRAD system was done to evaluate for local disease and local advanced disease, but never for systemic therapy. And as such, a biopsy is very critical for diagnostic purposes. But at the same time, if we don't collect that data that Dr. Alcuiri is asking for, we'll never be able to really tell how we're going to use those markers and potential targeted therapy that might, of course, occur in HCC, same as it could occur in other diseases. With this said, back to you, Stacey. A question. Uh, B7, chip checkpoint inhibitors, and what's about B, beyond B7, what would you use? Beyond B7? Yeah, so B7 and then beyond. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, you know, that is a lot of the patients, at least that I see probably, yeah. you know, whoever one sees, and I, I really do think of those patients as being candidates for all of the therapies that we've discussed. I think, you know, and this may be controversial to say also, but I have some patients with child PUC disease that have been on systemic therapy because their numbers have been stable for a long time. There's a big difference, I think, also, you know, we we assign a number, but we don't really talk about whether that's been a very stable trend or there's an active kind of decompensation, right, where they were A5 and now they're B7 and now they're going into B9. So I really do think that you you have to think about each person individually, but I, I get the sense that a lot of the B patients are being undertreated and that, you know, if people had more confidence and experience treating them, they would feel more comfortable sure. giving them therapy. Even though, of course, a clinical trial, which, by the way, uh, we know that certain groups are working on for the child PUB, real child PUB, in other words, not only B7, but B8, B9, everybody to checkpointers is ongoing. But at the same time, yes, there is a certain comfort zone, but please, please, our urging to you is, you had to be very careful and very cautious in regard to using those therapies and monitoring for the patients got to be very critical along those lines. Can I just say one more thing about Please, this that I could say? You know, just thinking, so for instance, like for the Derva Tremi regimen, the use of high-dose steroids was 20% in that combination versus 10 in Derva. And so 20% is pretty, you know, I think you, this is something I think about, especially in the B patients, is thinking about each patient in front of you if this patient had a side effect that really required high-dose steroids, would they be able to do that? Yep. You know, right? And, and I think thinking about that for each person, which that B number doesn't tell you the whole story, right? But sure. neither does performance status exactly, but thinking about all of their organ function. and Fair. Sure. Good. Well, perfect timing uh, to really wrap up the program. So we, if anything, thank you again, all of you, for uh, being with us. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash AAU860.
This educational activity is supported through independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, ASI Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, Merck and Company Incorporated, and Novocure Incorporated.